All right, Isaiah 66, let's pray. Father God, you are so good and so wonderful to us, and you are gracious to us that you have given us your word. Father, as we explore the riches of your word, I pray that you open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. Let our hearts be fertile ground for the seed of your word. God, I submit myself to you, to the will of your Holy Spirit. Move through me, work in me. I'm your willing vessel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And everyone said, amen. Isaiah chapter 66, beginning in verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. So I, I told you uh, last week, or a couple weeks ago, I think, I, I don't believe that fear is our best motivator. Um, I believe it is joy. You know, we do things that, that make us happy. That's the motivation for why we do what we do. No one sins out of a sense of duty. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I, I really don't want to sin today, but I guess I have to. No one does that. They do what they want to do. You sin because you, you want to sin. And on the other side of that, you do righteous deeds. You live righteously because you want to. When you do righteous deeds, you do it because it brings you joy. Certainly deeper and more abiding joy than any satisfaction you might get from, from sinning. Amen. That's why I think Christmas is, you know, the, the most wonderful time of the year. You know, Christmas, the mo everybody know what Christmas is? Yeah? Anybody heard of Christmas? The most wonderful time of the year? You know, by and large, everybody is, they're, they're living out what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. They don't realize that's what they're doing. I mean, even the secular world, the non-Christian world, understands this principle. When it comes Christmas time, everyone just seems happy to give. Because it is truly more blessed to give than it is to receive. It, it brings joy to give. And they, they figured it out, and they just, they just use Christmas as their excuse. Oh, if they could do that year-round. Joy is a very powerful motivator. You know, thankfulness and gratitude, those come from joy. And in heaven, there, there will be fullness of joy, which means that there will be abundant thankfulness and abundant gratitude. And I, I think those are our best motivators, not, not fear. Not fear. But even as I say that, I, I recognize it is difficult for us to be thankful for something when we for us to uh, truly appreciate something if we don't have a clear picture of the alternative. Amen. Amen. You know, it's hard for me to appreciate having a brand new car if I didn't first drive an old clunker, yes, you know. Amen. It's hard to me appreciate having something nice if I didn't have to work for it. I don't realize what the cost that went into getting it. Amen. If I don't see the alternative, it's difficult to really truly appreciate something so as we're in this series on, on heaven and looking at our, our blessed hope, I think it's prudent that we consider what the alternative is, heaven's alternative. Anyone know what that might be? It's hell. Can you say hell from the pulpit? You bet you can. Capital H, hell. It's a real place. 
I have some statistics for you that I found fascinating. I love statistics. They paint really interesting pictures of, of our, our world today. In 2014, anybody heard of Pew Research? They're a major research firm. There's all kind of research, all kind of, uh, uh, what you call it, uh, surveys, you know. The, the, all the political parties, they go to Pew Research to do their, their gathering of data. What, what do the voters think and all that kind of stuff. Well, they did some research in 2007 and again in 2014 on, on religion and the state of religion in, in the United States. They identified in their 2014 study that only 58% of adults in America believe in a hell of some kind. So just a little more than half of adults in America believe in some kind of hell. Now their, their ideas on, on what hell was was uh, pretty varied. I mean, some said it was just a state of non-existence. So you just, you just poof out of existence, and that in itself is, is kind of like a, a hell. And others said that it was just, it's just being absent from the presence of God, and, and that is, is bad enough that, it, that, that is, is hell. And there were some who believed that, that hell is actually a place of, of ongoing torment and a, a real place of torment, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And there are just varied views of what what hell is. Wide views among that 58% of Americans who actually believe in, in, a, in a hell. Another interesting fact is that of the people who said they do believe in hell, only 46% of those, so 58% believed and 48% of the 56% uh, believed, or they actually, that believed in hell actually read their Bibles once a week. Now, I don't know what that says to you, but to me, that tells me that what they say they believe, they don't actually act like they believe it. They say they believe in hell, but their actions don't show they believe in a, in a hell. Even more interesting is that when you, when you take that data, that 52%, 50, no, 68% of Americans believe in, 58% of Americans believe in hell, 72% of Americans believe in heaven, and two-thirds of them think that's where they're going. Two-thirds of that 72% think that's where they're going, where they die, where they die. And the rest of those people just don't know. They just don't know. Now, I don't know about you, but those numbers amaze me, especially given what Jesus said about the few that will find the path to life. In uh, Matthew 7, 13, he says, he tells us, Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go thereat by the way of destruction. In verse 14, he says, Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leadeth to life, and there be few that find it. Few that find this way to life. Not 72%, not two-thirds, but few there be that find this way to life. If you start looking at, at statistical data where they've surveyed self-professed Christians, it would not amaze you that there will be few that find heaven. Few there be that find it. I would say that, that uh, the two-thirds of Americans who believe that they're going to heaven, they're either deceived or delusional. And that's sad. That's a sad commentary. Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, listen to this, many will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in that day, they were having not cast out devils in the, and, 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 my, and done in your name, done many wonderful works. 
And what's he going to say to them? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Never knew you. Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out devils in your name? Didn't we do mighty deeds in your name? Many will say this. And he's going to say, I I don't even know you, you worker of iniquity. That, for me, is one of the most frightening passages in all of the scriptures. That terrifies me. And I'm not driven by fear. I'm driven by joy. I promise you this. But I am scared of this passage. I am so scared. I want to get it right. I want, right, come what may, because I don't want to be among those people who are deceived into thinking, Lord, I'm casting out demons in your name. I, surely I've secured my, my place in your righteous heaven. And he said, I don't know you, you work of iniquity. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. Many say, Lord, Lord, but they never knew him. You'd be amazed at the number of self-professing Christians who also believe in things like reincarnation who believe that you can, you can commune with the dead. Those are completely unbiblical concepts. So it, it, makes, it makes perfect sense that many would say, Lord, Lord, and he would say, I don't know you. They have jacked up views about who God is and how, what it means to serve him. They're not reading their words. Again, only half of the half that believed in hell read their word weekly. Forget daily. The fact of the matter is that Jesus Christ is the absolute only way out of hell. And I worded it that way for a reason. The only way out of hell, because that is exactly where you and I are headed outside of a Savior. Unless we are radically transformed by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are going straight to hell. That is our default destination. That's what's loaded in the GPS from the get-go. Hell. Did you know that? Without a divine course correction, we are headed straight for destruction. Listen to what God says about the matter. I've got a lot of scripture here. I'm going to burn through it, so bear with me. Um, Here we go. Psalms 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And then he repeats himself. Look, several chapters later in Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3. Anytime God says something more than once, you better pay extra special, super-duper attention. He says the same thing in 53, verse 2. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Nobody. And then again, in the New Testament... Moved by the Holy Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul writes these words in Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And if that doesn't hit you on the head, that famous passage from Romans uh, 3.23, all have sinned. How many is all? Last time I checked, it was all. You know, I went and did some study on that Greek word for all. And you know what it means in English? All. <laughs> all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So everybody is guilty of sin. Everyone, every person, and all sin is utterly damning before God. 
It can't stand before God. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities, what do they do? They separate you from your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. In Habakkuk, the prophet is addressing his grievances towards God. Basically, he's calling out to God for justice. Uh, so he's, and he's basing this, this, this complaint to God on the basis of God's righteous holiness. And he says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Thou art purer of eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore thou lookest upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. So Habakkuk, he's noticed that it seems like, and I imagine some of you may be in this situation too. I know sometimes I wonder, why does it seem like the wicked man always gets ahead? The crooked person. You know, I look at their life, and man, they've got the house and the job, and the, they don't seem like, there's a, why does it seem like, Lord, that they're, they're getting ahead? And Habakkuk is basing this complaint on God's attribute of holiness. He said, you can't even look on, holy, on, on unholiness. You can't even look on wickedness. You can't even tolerate sin. Why is it that it seems like they're getting ahead? And this is his complaint to God. What he, the prophet doesn't understand is they, that, that though it may seem that way now, they will ultimately get what's coming to them in the end. They will ultimately meet a day of judgment where they will be judged for eternity and destruction will be their end. Revelation 21, 27. Man, you just don't get language more clear than this. There shall in no wise enter into it. That's the, the new Jerusalem. That's heaven. Anything that defileth, neither whosoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those people, and only those people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God will be able to enter into the new Jerusalem, which is heaven. Everybody else, everyone else, absent that work of grace mixed with faith, is bound for hell. That is the default destination. And what is hell? What is hell? Is it, is it just zapping out of existence? Is it just a place of discomfort? Is it just the absence from God's presence? Hell is death and fire and punishment forever. Active punishment forever. Amen. And that's our default destination. Because we're all guilty, remember, we're all sinners, everybody's unrighteous. Hell is where we will be if we have not put our hope and our joy in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I want to spend a little time in, in the book of Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse, verse 42. Jesus is talking and he says, Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him if a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. And then he says in 43, this is interesting, If your hand offend you, cut it off, for it is better to enter into life maimed. Now I, I have to pause here a minute. How, how does the living enter into life? He's talking about the afterlife, Okay. Passing from this life through death into life. It is better to enter into life, the resurrection of the dead. Remember from last week, everybody is resurrected in the last day. Every soul that has ever lived on the earth, from those that have lived over a hundred years to, to the ones that didn't live long enough to even take their first breath. 
from those who lived righteous lives to the, the very wicked and, and the very evil, perverse, utterly evil lives, everybody in between, everybody will be raised in the last day. Up from the grave. Some are raised to life, some are raised to death and destruction. And Jesus is saying here, it is better that you go, that you be raised into life crippled and maimed than it is to have your whole body but still go to hell. That's what he's saying. The verse, continue that, that verse. Better to be enter into life maimed, it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands and go into hell. And then he defines hell. How does he define it? In fire. That shall not be quenched. Is that what it says? Into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. So hell is never ending, always burning, forever and ever fire. But that's not all. Verse 44, where, that's in hell, in this place where the never ending fire shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. He repeats himself. An undying worm and an unquenched fire. This is a fire that burns hot and never lets up. You know, you, you, you light a campfire, you go camping, you, you build your fire, and it will blaze and burn hot for a while. But after a while, that fire burns down and it begins to smolder. And this is not a smolder that Jesus is talking about. It's an unquenched fire. It's a roaring, blazing, white-hot inferno. Jesus emphasizes this point by using the same language, the same description three times in the same conversation. One right after another. In verse 43, it's better for you to enter life maimed than having two hands going to hell uh, into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm dieth not and the fire squat quenched. And again in 45, he says it is better for thee to enter halt, that's crippled, uh, cut off your foot, he said. It's better go crippled than having two feet and be cast into the into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Verse 47, it better to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hell fire, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. What do you think he's saying about hell? It's hot. And it never stops. It never lets up. It's an unquenched, white hot, inferno fire. Well, Brother Jeff, is it really a literal fire or is it just a figurative language that he's using to try to get the point across? Well, I have to ask you, would it really matter? Would it really matter? If my flesh is literally on fire, it's going to cause me great, unimaginable pain and torment. If I feel like my flesh is literally on fire, whether it's literally on fire or not, if I feel like it is, it's going to cause me unimaginable great pain and anguish and torment. So even if, and I'm not saying it is, but even if, I'm just, I'm just trying to answer those who, who downplay the language and say, yeah, but it's not a literal fire, just a figurative fire. Well, if that in, is indeed the case, even if it is just figurative language, it's bad enough to make me not want to go there. Amen. I don't want to experience that. I've had sunburns before, pretty bad ones, and those are, those are terrible. Amen. Amen. And th- that's nothing compared to this. I debated on whether or not to put this image up here, but there are no kids, so that's okay. Put that picture up, Michaela. There you go. Do y'all remember this picture? Anybody remember this? This is from when they attacked the two towers in 2001, the Twin Towers, September 11th. I don't know if you remember the story behind this. This is a man falling. There were at least 200 
people that jumped to their death from over above the hundredth floor in that building. The fires, when the airplane crashed into the buildings, the fires raged so hot they, they couldn't take it. So I don't know if you know about the design of buildings, but up that high, the man who designed the building, he had a fear of heights. So that's why the windows were so narrow. They're only 18 inches wide. But the, the windows up top don't open. The higher up you get in those skyscrapers, the windows, for obvious reasons, they don't want people jumping out of them. They don't want people falling out of them. So they had to break the window to jump out of it. That's calculated. They had to put some thought into this. They had time to consider their alternatives. The fire is burning beneath them. The, the heat is rising. They're suffocating in the heat. It was so unbearable, the only way to escape that they could find was to jump out of the window over a hundred stories up, which they knew would end in certain death. Amen. I want you to see the picture. At least 200 people, like I said, they died jumping out of the windows, making the choice that falling a hundred floors to their death was better. It was more relief, more bearable than the suffocating heat they were currently feeling. Better than the agonizing pain that was awaiting them if they had waited for the fire to consume them. They weren't on fire yet. Amen. Amen. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Amen. They weren't on fire yet. It was just hot and suffocating. They couldn't breathe and they thought, I can get relief from this if I just jump. And then this suffering will end. And this will be better. That end will be better than the end of actually burning in the fire. If, if the fire is worse than what I'm feeling now, it's better just to jump. Amen. Amen. They weren't on fire yet. So they opted for the relief of a quick and painless death. But you won't get that choice in hell. The fire is unquenched. You don't have the choice to jump from a window. And look at that language about the worm. The worm dies not. That's, that's vivid. You've got to wrap your mind around this. We need to look at Isaiah 66. That's what I read at the beginning of the, the service. Isaiah 66, 22 through 24. He says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I shall make, shall remain before me. I've got to pause right here just for a second. The new heavens and the new earth, which I shall make we're in a series about heaven our blessed hope so look what he says new heavens new earth other translations say i, I will make um, in other words they aren't made yet the new heaven and the new earth which i shall make they aren't they aren't made yet there's something new something that is yet to come not not the present heaven not not the present earth but new heavens and a new earth that god will will recreate now, he could have said a new creation that I'll make, but he didn't say that. He said the new heavens and the new earth that he will make. It's, it's new, but it's still heaven. It's, it's still earth, but it's, it's remade. It's, it's new. Anybody ever watch those car shows where they, they rebuild cars? You ever seen those? You know, they take a, an old rust bucket, and, you know, maybe falling apart, and there, there's no engine in it, and they, and they rebuild it. You know, they sand it, and they scrub it, and they strip it, and they scrape it, and, and they, they start to put new parts on it, and they refabricate things, and they, they put that Bondo stuff on it, smooth it all out, and sand it down, and missing pieces, and they, they rebuild it. They, they polish it and paint it. They add new gadgets to it. They overhaul it. And when they're done, it looks totally new. 
I mean, you can still see it's a car. It's got four wheels. It's got a steering wheel and a windshield. It's got an engine to make it go. All the things that make the car what the car is and to make it recognizable. And you might even be able to look at that after they're done customizing and doing all their magic to it. After they're done doing it, you may be able to look at that and say, ah, yeah, that's a 63 Corvette. Look at what they did to that. I mean, you can still see what it it is, but it's new. It's still a car. It's still the Corvette. It's still the thing it was, but it's it's made new. It's been recreated, renewed, remade, given new life. There's a lot more to say about that in the coming weeks. Just chew on that for now. The new heaven, the new earth that I will make. New, but still earth. New, but still heaven. But God says, look at this. He, he says, look about this new created universe. He says, it shall remain before me. Remember the passage in Isaiah 40, verse 8, that says, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of God is forever. The grass withers, the flower fades. This present earth, this present creation, the present heaven is temporary. It will fade, but this new thing I'm going to do, this is the end. This is going to remain before me forever. When God remakes the heavens and the earth, there will be no end to them. They will remain before him forever. So new heaven recreated, new earth recreated are forever. If new heaven and new earth are forever, what do you think hell is? Verse 23, and it shall come to pass that from one moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. He's talking about the nations, all the people of every nation, all the the ones who have put their hope and trust in Jesus will go before him and and worship him. But there's something else. I mean, that's wonderful. We're going to go before God and worship God. All nations, every tongue and tribe and nation will bend their knee and worship the Lord. Everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life but there's something else, verse 24, and they, that's the worshipers, they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. Now, now we'll get into this more in the coming weeks as well, but this is interesting, that those who are with God, those who are redeemed, worshipers of God, we will be aware, we will look upon those who are in torment. And I'll tell you, church, For those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, who have made Christ our Lord and Savior, that is a good thing for us. God's presence, His glory, His triumph over death and hell, His mercy towards us, His immeasurable goodness toward us will be even more so in our hearts when we see the hell that He saved us from. We'll be aware of it. That's what He says here. We'll look upon the carcasses of the dead, the dead bodies. And it's interesting that he calls them dead bodies because the wicked are resurrected unto destruction. They're raised into death, eternal death. They're not out of existence, but they are eternally dead. They're conscious, but dead. They have a body, but they have, they have form and they have feeling, but they're, they're dead. Look, look at the language that he uses. He says, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an, an abhorring unto all flesh. This is never-ending decay. Imagine rotting flesh eaten by worms. I hate, I'm sorry to disgust you, but that's, that's the image that we get. Being eaten by worms, disgusting and putrid in the odor of death and decay. And the thing is, it's your flesh that's being eaten if that's where you are. That's your flesh that's rotting. Endlessly being eaten and endlessly rotting. And if the burning fire weren't terrible enough, add to it the pain and the stench of decay. Amen. Amen. It occurs to me that, that Brother Mike, he's, he's been dealing with the battle for a while. 
with decay in his leg. I mean, he could probably tell us a few things about the pain and the stench of decay. And as traumatic as it was, Brother Mike was able to get some relief, at least when the doctor said, let's just cut it off. Let's just cut off the pain and the decay. You won't have that option in hell. There won't be the option to get that kind of relief. There, there will be never-ending decay and fire. Revelation 16, 10, and 11 has some interesting things to say. Now, this is before the final judgment that, that John is writing about, before the lake of fire, before the things that we just talked about, but it paints a very vivid picture about how things will be in the place of eternal judgment. When, if they're this bad before the judgment, imagine the judgment later. He says, and the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Do you see that? They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. People chewing on their own tongues to take their minds off the pain and the torment they're feeling in the rest of their bodies. What a vivid picture. What a horrible picture that is. And look at, look at what it does to their mental state. It doesn't make them sad or sorrowful or full of regret or remorseful. I mean, there will be an abundance of that kind of stuff in hell. But what does it do to them? It makes them rage with fury against God. They blaspheme His holy name and they refuse to repent of their wicked deeds. Even in the middle of gnawing their tongue off because of the pain, they refuse to see that God is glorious full of rage. This is what con- being condemned, consigned to hell. This is what your default destination is. Amen. Jesus refers to hell as, as outer darkness. Matthew 8, 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast into outer darkness. Talking about the children of, of Israel who, who refused to accept Christ, who wanted to live in the old way. They'll be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that's interesting. Why does he say outer darkness? Why not just darkness? There's a difference between darkness and, and outer darkness. We, we've got to get the picture. You ever been in, at your home alone and it's dark in your home? You know, you can kind of find your way around. You're familiar with your surroundings. It may be pitch black. You may not be able to see an inch in front of your face, but you know that you're home. You've got, you've got four walls around you to protect you. If you hear any noises, you know, you know, oh, what well, someone might be trying to get in, or oh, that's just the cat, whatever. I mean, but you're, you, you know, there's a sense of familiarity and security about it. But now, now take that same darkness and, and place yourself out in the middle of nowhere. Amen. There, there's no familiarity. You don't, any noise that you hear, you don't know what's coming at you. There's no walls to protect you. There's no security. There's no, there's no sure footing. There's no, there's no, there's, there's no, there's no peace about it at all. It's, it's just utter, outer darkness. And that's what he's telling us. You'll be cast into outer darkness. Great peril and alone. What a horrible place to be. And that's our destination. It is exactly where we'll end up without a Savior. Amen. Amen. Revelation 20:15. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So imagine a fire that burns but puts off no light. 
Imagine that. Because the only light will be God. We won't even have a sun or a moon. That's what the scripture says. Because our light will be God. The sun won't shine anymore. The moon won't, won't shine anymore. Because our light will be from God. We will behold His glory. Now, in hell, it's outer darkness. So, you know, all the pictures, that we, the cute little pictures that we have of hell, and the artists try to render hell, it's always, you know, glowing red, and there are fires, and everyone can see what's going on. No. There's no dark. Fire, but no light. Outer darkness. Everlasting, forever. Punishment. Matthew 25, 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So it's active punishment. That's forever. Active torment, not passive. So away with the notions that hell isn't that bad of a place or that hell is simply the absence of God. It's much more than that. It is real torment. Active, ongoing, forever, never-ending anguish. But we don't have to go there, though. Did you know that? (laughs) We don't have to go there. We don't have to live in fear of that place or the pain of outer darkness that awaits those who don't trust Jesus. Yes, hell is our default destination, but to the glory of God, he provided a course correction in Jesus Christ. He sent us a Savior to take on himself all the punishment of hell for all those who would believe in his name and his sacrifice. You know John 3.16. For God so loved me and you, that he gave his son. That whosoever believed anybody that would just put their faith in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Complete contrast to the everlasting death that awaits those who refuse him. This man, Jesus, if you've put your trust and your hope in him, then your future is secure, church. Your future is bright. Resurrection from death into everlasting life, not into death and decay. Not darkness and pain and torment, but everlasting life. Forever alive, forever rejoicing, forever grateful, forever full of joy. And the brilliant glory of heaven is made all the more bright, all the more clear when we cast it against the utter darkness and destruction of hell. Because there, hell, were it not for the grace of God, is exactly where we'd all go. Amen. Amen. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and, and we are certain about our heavenly future, the reality of hell should break our hearts and it should take us to our knees crying out to God for those that are lost. And more than that, it should take us to their doors, to the doors of those who don't know Christ. If you're among those who aren't sure of where you're going, if your final destination remains a mystery to you, you can be certain that you will not go to hell. You can be certain to make heaven your home. You don't have to play guessing games with your eternity. If Christ is your treasure and your Lord, if you recognize your sin before Him and you place your faith in His sacrifice and His forgiveness, you don't have to live in any fear of hell or torment. You can live for righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There is a course correction. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, without it, we're all, pardon the expression, but we are all damned to hell. Praise God for His Son. Praise God 
for that course correction for our sake. I don't have to go there. I can be sure of the exact opposite existence. We're going to look at how glorious that is. I told you, I don't think fear is a great motivator. I really don't. I'm not trying to put fear into anybody's heart. What I want to do is to show you the stark contrast that is going to exist. And we'll paint that beautiful picture over the next coming weeks of what awaits us in glory, what awaits us in heaven. But to appreciate, I think really humanly trying to appreciate what awaits us in glory, we need to understand the horror that we're headed for otherwise. What we've been saved out of. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you have saved us from this, this fate. I thank you that you've given us a way out. That even though that's where we're headed before we made any choices in the world, just because of the nature of the fall, Lord, even though we have all sinned and all fallen short of your glory, you have given us a way. In this, we know that you loved us, that you sent your son to die for us while we were yet sinners. So, Father, we thank you for that, and I pray that we just latch on to that like, like we never have before. That it, is, it is truly our blessed hope. Keep us as we go safely our, our separate ways. Bless the food and the those who have prepared it. Bless our fellowship as we, as we gather together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.